What if I told you that the key to understanding what is going on with the World Economic Forum, which we're hearing about in the news today, is really revealed in its origins? Do you even know what the origins are of the World Economic Forum? Have a listen to this just briefly. They've been around since about 1971. They were first founded as what was then called the European uh, Community Forum, which was an initiative that was started, oddly enough, by Henry Kissinger, who first introduced Klaus Schwab to the, well, the economist John Kenneth Galbraith and a man called Herman Kahn, who used to run a think tank for the kind of technocratic future managerial model of society called the Hudson Institute. So these men were put together in order to create what was thought then to be an extension of United States interest in global governance, in a, in a model for how to best efficiently manage human populations. And Europe was seen as a problem that they hadn't yet tried to solve. So that in 1971, in 1970, they accompanied Schwab to attract people to the first meeting, which took place in 1971. Several years later, it became the World Economic Forum. Kissinger himself addressed the World Economic Forum in 1980. So he carried on in uh, an association, which I think will continue to this day, even though it's probably less uh, gifted than the limelight now. In addition to knowing where the World Economic Forum came from, they have plans, plans for the future, that they're rolling out in front of us right now. Listen to some of that. The World Economic Forum is part of a much broader attempt to refigure human behavior and, and, and indeed to institute a global management system that is more efficient from the point of view of management, of global management, precisely because it patterns human behavior upon technology that was initially invented to spy on everyone. In order to sustain what they're doing, because it, it seems so impossible when they tell us at the same time you're going to own nothing and yet be happy, how are they going to do that? There's one key element that you've got to understand in how they foist all of this. Have a listen. Why is the WEF so visible today? It's because of their ability, uh, their habit of leveraging a sense of permanent alarm. And the great success of fomenting a sense of crisis over the environment has allowed them to open the door to their own profit solutions. The more popular that this, this mistaken, and I think it is mistaken belief, that mankind is destroying the planet uh, and is doing so in an accelerating, destructive fashion, is, uh, it simply helps these people to, uh, to advance their agenda. Without a sense of emergency, no one would, would even consider the expedience that they're offering. But what he's offering is security in a time of ongoing crisis. Crisis is their best friend. There is a solution to all of this. I know it seems completely overwhelming, like these guys own the universe and are coming after us and there's nothing we can do. Actually, there is something we can do. Listen to this. The best antidote to what you might call the massification of everything or, you know, scale, which is, um, you know, the scale, complexity, atomization, uh, liberalism and elitism that, that typifies this kind of technological managerialism is by strong and meaningful human scale bonds, community bonds, by the belief in God, by genuine durable human relations, which begins uh, with the family, but doesn't end there, but the extension of the family into a meaningful community, a helpful mutualist community where people have shared and stable values. Human scale relations is the answer. 
And let me introduce this fellow to you. This is Frank Wright. Frank Wright is a writer for LifeSite News, thanks be to God, and we are so pleased to bring you his insights on the World Economic Forum, which he has been studying for years and years, and which he is following for LifeSite News right now. This is The John Henry Weston Show. Stay tuned. Frank Wright, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Let's begin as we always do at the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. A lot of people are right now focused on the World Economic Forum because a lot of the world leaders are there. It's going on. There's already a lot of controversy and that people are being barred from seeing what's actually going on. Tell us, if you can, what is the World Economic Forum? Where does it come from? And why the big splash about it now? Well, the big splash about it now is obviously because it's a rather secretive and somewhat influential organization that's mainly composed of, well, business leaders. Uh, They're very, very interested in attracting global business leaders, like leaders of international corporations and so on, digital media companies, leaders of industry. And this will help them in their stated aims, which is they they are really a managerial organization that seeks to shape the future experience of humanity and global governance. So they invite world leaders as well. And they've been, they've been around since about 1971. They were first founded as what was then called the European uh, Community Forum, which was an initiative that was started, oddly enough, by Henry Kissinger, who first introduced Klaus Schwab to the, well, the economist John Kenneth Galbraith and a man called Herman Kahn, who used to run a think tank for the kind of technocratic future managerial model of society called the Hudson Institute. So these men were put together in order to create what was thought then to be an extension of the United States' interest in global governance, in a a model for how to best efficiently manage human populations. And Europe was seen as a problem that they hadn't yet tried to solve. So in 1971, in 1970, they accompanied Schwab to attract people to the first meeting, which took place in 1971. Several years later, it became the World Economic Forum. Kissinger himself addressed the World Economic Forum in 1980. So he carried on uh, an association, which I think will continue to this day, even though it's probably less uh, gifted than the limelight now. What the World Economic Forum wishes to do is it wishes to attract influential people in order to promote a managerial program that is largely infused by technology. Since about 1941, the idea that that you can see humanity as a managerial problem, as a problem to be managed, Uh, has been around since the publication of a book called The Managerial Revolution by um, James P. Burnham, uh, which was first reviewed famously by George Orwell. In this book is a blueprint for modern society. You would recognise much of the processes and even some of the language today, such as the manager's right to manage. But what it presages is the supplanting of state and institutional power with that of an international managerial class, one which we have today. And what has changed since the 1940s is technology. We have the technology, or rather they do now, to advance an idea that of a future humanity, which I would argue is the deletion of everything valuable about the human experience in order to make human beings globally more manageable. If anybody's wondering who Henry Kissinger is, he is the same one who, involved with the U.S. government, Um, actually drafted NSSM 200, which was the National Security Study Memorandum 200, which outlined the need for population control to be imposed by the United States to maintain supremacy around the world. 
And that then got put into U.S. foreign policy, which is why you see, even to this day, the massive push on birth control and population control around the globe coming from the United States because it's actually part of their uh, international policy as developed by Henry Kissinger. But please go on. You were mentioning to me before that these folks, even in the 60s, could envision a time when they would be able to do this kind of mass population control. Yes. Whenever they talk about it, whether it's in 1941 or 1969 or 1970 or yesterday at the Crystal Awards by Schwab himself, they always frame this technological transformation into a mass surveillance state in talk of security or safety or a more stable way of life for everyone. So what, what was going on with the Hudson Institute with Herman Kahn? Herman Kahn invited the BBC into his institute in, I think, in 1969 to, as it were, open the door on his work there, which was very well funded and did do much to inform the posture and policy of the developing United States national security state under Nixon. What he was talking about in this interview is remarkable. He speaks about a future managerial utopia, a utopia from the manager's point of view, of course, wherewith they encounter social problems. He describes the emergence of violent protest movements as throwing sand in the gears. They always use mechanical metaphors. But tellingly, in the case of uh, a scenario that they imagine where an entire city is revolting, is in some state of civil unrest, they casually discuss the option of neutralising this problem, again, you know, in very delicate language, by um, adding tranquilizers to the water supply. And uh, Herman Kahn's on video saying this. Just to prove that, let's, let's show a clip of that if we could. You could imagine temporarily tranquilizing a whole city. You know, it's been upset, been riots. Mm -hmm. You know, let's put trans guards either in the air or in the water. Mm -hmm. You know, just mm -hmm. get people settled down a bit. Well, I mean, this is, it sounds unbelievable, but what was he actually saying there? And the tie-in again from Herman Kahn to where we are today with the World Economic Forum. The tie-in from Herman Kahn to where we are today in the World Economic Forum is that he was introduced, along with John Kenneth Galbraith, to Klaus Schwab by Henry Kissinger in order to form the World Economic Forum. This is the origins of the WF, which is rather lesser known, but which is documented in publications such as the New York Times. In a New York Times interview in the 90s, I think in 1997, Schwab himself mentions the meeting uh, which, they, which they arranged in Europe between himself and Kahn and Galbraith to attract world leaders and influential members of the business community and people that they called opinion formers to come to the World Economic Forum. I mean, tellingly, the World Economic Forum, I think to this day, does not pay what they call honorariums. They may pay for your hotel room, but they, uh, they make money. They, they don't pay people to appear there. Uh, the idea is that, is that you, you join a very influ an increasingly influential forum, which includes people who have the power to make hidden decisions throughout the world. The hidden decision dimension comes from the United States national security state. There is one aspect of this game that is that really ought to be common knowledge, but isn't. Uh, the Total Information Awareness Program is a very good example for many reasons. It came around in around 2002, after the September the 11th attacks, which conveniently gave the neoconservatives um, the shot in the arm that they needed to prevent them from extinction. It opened the door to a to these ideas of global mass surveillance, which are necessary for this kind of technocratic management. It was met with absolute outcry, because what it was, 
was an attempt to institute the very suggestions that Herman Kahn made in the Hudson Institute uh, 22 years earlier. It said, we, can now, we now have the technology to institute a total information awareness program. That is to say, to execute a mass surveillance uh, program on the United States population. In 1969, in this interview that we've just seen, Herman Kahn's protege talks about future technology in which it will be possible to do just this. He speaks of phone calls quite nostalgically, saying that we'll be able to monitor every single phone call and then have a computer scan these phone calls worldwide, every single worldwide phone call, for keywords to see if we need to look at it more closely. One could, um, with a computer capacity that will be available in the next couple of decades, one could easily record every phone conversation made. And then one could easily scan mechanically, no human being could spend the centuries that would be required. One could scan every conversation looking for keywords that would identify the conversation as uh, worth looking into a little further. So that, for example, uh, one could begin with a naive set of words. Uh, kill, rob, murder, assassinate, plot. What the United States security state wanted to do in 2003 was to, was to execute this program. It was met with outroar, uh, uproar, sorry, and outrage. And their, uh, their expedient was to change it to the terrorist information awareness initiative, which of course then was evocative of images of safety and Big Brother looking after you rather than prying into your every movement to create, as they said, a limitless array of data points of human behavior. This is where the story gets interesting because this, this program did in fact attempt to change its branding by moving from a more traditional CIA style presentation to cutesy uh, cartoon-like imagery to soften its image. It didn't work. It was, it was ordered by the United States Senate to shut down. But it was continued, and it was continued by the admission of DARPA itself in documents that can still be seen on the Wayback Machine on their own website into a program called LifeLog. Now, LifeLog was an attempt to extend data capture from mere telephone calls to everything humans did. It was a prototype for Facebook, and it was closed on the very same day that Facebook was launched. In later statements made by former DARPA employees, they admit openly that Facebook is nothing more than a continuation of the United States uh, security state attempt to capture trillions of data points from people voluntarily, thereby obviating objection to a mass surveillance state. And they're doing this in order to build what DARPA called in 2004 cognitive computing. That's to say the modern algorithms that we have today. Now, these algorithms are important because what they are is a machine-based model of human nature which is largely based on the behavior of people who have enthusiastically adopted social media. So the model of human behavior that they're capturing is of people who are quite comfortable to upload their personalities to the machine and to live this synergistic life, this cybernetic existence that, that practically removes or displaces the human dimension with that of the virtual. People who are happy to pixelate themselves have become the future model of humanity for the managerial society, for the utopia that they imagine for us all to inhabit in future. It is a model of human behavior and nature that eliminates God and the best of human nature itself. All the dissidents, the independence of mind, the strength of character that allows you to resist the mass formation psychosis will not feature 
in these algorithms. And these, these tendencies will and are isolated and neutralized by these very algorithms that run most of the social media companies. Now, if you mention this to people, they would think it sounds quite far-fetched. But if you care to look it up, and I have written an article that references these links for LifeSite, which was published on Monday, you can see that the government's, the United States government's own archives demonstrate the veracity of all these claims. So the World Economic Forum is part of a much broader attempt to refigure human behavior and, to, and, and indeed to institute a global management system that is more efficient from the point of view of management, of global management, precisely because it patterns human behavior upon technology that was initially invented to spy on everyone. Unbelievable. If you can just define one term, DARPA, you mentioned a couple of times. What's DARPA? Defense and Armaments Research Project Agency, which is, a, which is a, the kind of acronym that you might think just features in shady video games. But really, it's, it's, it's a defense research um, agency that's been around since, I think, the 1950s. Advanced technologies, uh, especially things like uh, intelligence techniques, data capture, but also things like experimental um, military technology and strategy. It's a, it's a think tank for, if you like, defense, which now in the United States uh, security state also adumbrates national security. So it, it would be, if you like, it's, it's, um, it's where a lot of the military spooks hang out. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a function of the intelligence state. What's truly remarkable is that most of the world has heard about this. They've heard about this in China. They've heard about it as the, you know, the system in China where every movement you make, every phone call, every click on your computer and your, your handheld device are all registered. You're given a social credit score that then can even interact with your bank account uh, if you're allowed out and so on. It's everything controlled. What you're saying is the evidence is there that this is being foisted upon the US population and the population of the globe at large. It, how does China even figure into that? Are they like the test run or what? That's a viable hypothesis. I think it is. China now has a biometric system where you can pay with your face. So your face is already linked to your social credit account, and you don't need to show any chip or any, any kind of implant or your phone. As soon as you show your face, the camera knows who you are, and it, it subtracts the, the concomitant amount from your bank account. So you could say that China is, if you like, the, uh, the testing ground for these technologies. Whether or not that's the case, and I think there's a compelling case to be made there, it is certainly the case that these are ideas that came out of the United States, and they came out of the national security state. And that was a, that was a state that was, that was heavily expanded, aggressively expanded under Nixon's two terms, under the, under the direction of Henry Kissinger. It's important to understand that these people are technocrats. That's to say that they are an elite. They are an elite who believe that they uniquely deserve power. Uh, there was a video today of John Kerry speaking um, in his in favor of the World Economic Forum, saying that these people have a messianic quality because they believe themselves to have been touched by a sense of mission to, as it were, serve humanity by leading them. And when you stop and think about it, it's pretty extraordinary that we select group of human beings because of whatever touched us at some point in our lives are able to sit in a room and come together and uh, actually talk about saving the planet. I mean, it's so almost extraterrestrial to think about 
quote, saving the planet. And if you said that to most people, most people, they think you're just a crazy tree-hugging, lefty, liberal, you know, do-gooder, whatever. And, and there's no relationship. But really, that's where we are. People such as Tony Blair were often described as, uh, as being possessed of a kind of messianic kind of mentality. And the, the broader picture of the technocratic future that the World Economic Forum paints for us does have a political, ethical, and economic dimension. In every action that they take, it is a neoliberal economic dimension that they take, where um, you will find that corporations can act without consequence, and so can state-level actors, that large-scale bureaucracies never face the consequences of their disastrous decisions, no matter how bad it is. They may pay token fines, they will continue to operate. But it is notable that you as an individual can have your life ruined for saying the wrong pronoun. So for extremely negligible transgressions, which some self-appointed commissars have now dedicated their lives to detecting in you, even in the way that you look at people, this can be termed a microaggression. We've all heard about the terminology. The point that I'm making here is, is the scale of consequence. The bigger you are, the tinier or, or, or in, in fact, non-existent consequences that are attended upon large-scale disasters resulting from your decisions. Whereas if you are an individual person, your life can and may very well will be ruined for simply saying the wrong word. This is the reality that we inhabit. Uh, another, another political dimension that we have is the loss of moral authority in the West. I mean, there was a, there was a thinker in Britain in the 1960s who was writing and speaking at the same time that the Hudson Institute was taking off. He was called Sir Isaiah Berlin, and he was probably the best defender of the liberal idea with the capital L, the John Stuart Mill classical liberalism, that, who lived in the 20th century. He said that the reason why we are better than the Soviet Union, the reason why we in the West are better than the dictatorships is because we have the moral authority that comes from pluralism, that we have the only society that tolerates opposing points of view where you were free to disagree. Well, this is no longer the case. The last three years have demonstrated that our so-called inalienable rights can be suspended at the whim of large-scale bureaucracies, which means they are not rights at all. When they're, when they're inconvenient to the, to the management, they are simply dismissed. We do not any longer tolerate opposing points of view. You are free to agree, or you are free to carry the extremely severe penalties for noticing things, noticing basic facts about reality out loud, or if you like, speaking your mind as a normal person in the 1990s. The pace of change has been alarming. Opinions that were normal even 15 years ago, even 10 years ago, uh, are now hugely controversial and can cost you your livelihood. This is, this, this, is not, this is not a pluralistic society. People joke about woke and they joke about polarization. But the aim of cancel culture is to cancel culture and replace it with a one-dimensional existence for us all. The one-dimensionality of life, the fact that you're only free to agree, is also a function of what I would call the post-human future, which is represented by the technocrats at the World Economic Forum. They're not the only ones, but it is the major meeting place for people who are minded to see humanity as a problem to be managed. And the way they intend to manage that problem is by dehumanizing people. It, it sounds sensationalist, but if you look into what's happening with public morality, with the massification of human behavior, where everything becomes a function of mass media society, there are mass crazes. Suddenly, 
I don't know if I'm permitted to say this, but the the sudden obligatory worship uh, of a criminal becomes an, uh, not just an epidemic, but something which you are expected to applaud or face consequences for. Issues such as the usage of masks, uh, issues such as the obligation to have injections that whose safety is yet to be proven, issues such as the, the Nature published a study showing the rising levels of global hatred of the unvaccinated, the extreme polarization of society, the promotion of extreme individualism, the delimiting of desire, and the ethical system that says that the greatest good is the pursuit of personal satisfaction, that it's simply hedonic utilitarianism. Do what you like, seek pleasure, and there's no higher spiritual or moral purpose to life. This leads to a vacuum in human, in human nature. It subtracts from human life the greatest possible meaning that there can be, which is the moral order that comes from God. Notably, in the constitution of the European Union, there was no mention of Christianity. This is because the European Union itself is very much the type of technocratic managerial bureaucracy that, that envisages for its citizens a global uh, transhuman or post-human identity, where with everything that is meaningful in, in the human dimension is subtracted in order to promote some idea of utopian equality. It is, it is a society in which no one will have anything to envy because there will be no difference, because we, will be, we are viewed by these people as ideally fungible, as if we're all just little, little yellow Lego men with replaceable heads and everybody with perpetually smiling faces. This, this is genuinely the vision that the technocrats have for, for, for everyone, not for themselves, because notably in his, uh, his address to the Crystal Awards yesterday, Klaus Schwab said that he, he mentioned the crises facing the world and that you know there could hardly be a worse time to be speaking, he said. But then he says it begs the question, how are we to master the future. It does not take Sherlock Holmes to ask or to answer who is to be the master and who is to be the mastered. The, the, the hubris of these people is astonishing. It, it is, it's remarkable that people who, who sit in these uh, bureaucratic removes assign to themselves and reserve exclusively to themselves the power to decide what is good for humanity. But not only that, that they think that they have within their grasp the remedy. When he was asked uh, years ago, decades ago, why he decided to stage um, the economic forum, the World Economic Forum, on a mountain in Davos in Switzerland, he referenced a book by Thomas Mann called The Magic Mountain. He said that because there's something uh, in German and Austrian imagination uh, that's magical about mountains, and I wanted it to be that kind of place, a magical remove from the real world. If you read The Magic Mountain, I don't suggest you do because... I find Thomas Mann's books insufferably tedious. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, he does have his fans. It's about a sanitarium, which does exist. It's about a real place. So it's about a kind of asylum on top of, um, of a Swiss mountain where people go to recover from society uh, and in which various occult and mythological themes take place in the book. It isn't an innocent book. And the fantasies it has about humanity are wicked. And they are depraved. And it is this that is the subtext of the magic mountain, is that, is that you, you have a cult-like mentality of people who are in some sense refugees, but also seeking some kind of asylum from the world. 
who see themselves as separate from others and who can symbolize reality in a way that's meaningful only to them. These are people who speak a hieratic language between themselves. These are people whose stated aims is to create a global surveillance state for the betterment of mankind. These are people whose solutions, as it were, are worse than the disease and who never own up to the fact that most of these crises to which they speak they indicate crises constantly as an argument for their own solutions, but they never admit that they themselves are the cause of these crises. The enormous crippling debt burden in the West was caused by the very technocratic managerialists who are currently in charge of our system. They have burdened everyone with a, a potential earthquake of debt, which may yet see the end of the dollar-based system. It could be epochal in its disastrous consequences. Nonetheless, the latest round of, of borrowing under COVID to finance these ruinous lockdowns has resulted in soaraway inflation that has simply been fueled by nine rounds of sanctions against uh, the Russians, that has seen Europe gradually and then rapidly de-industrialize and enter a state of permanent stagflation with no possible exit. These leaders to whom we are to trust the future of humanity have created the very problems in almost every case of which they complain. The crises in the dissolution of society, the fact that they mention an epidemic of mental illness, and then they, they have the goal to tell you that this is due to people's interactions with mass media, the very mass media that they're using to reshape you into a broken human subject, a dehumanised broken subject, who is more likely to be happy with a few meagre consumer consolations than the genuine consolations that make life truly meaningful, which they can never offer. So they use the sense of permanent emergency as, a, as, a, as, it, like, as it were, as an invitation into their dystopia. It's only by this means that it could make this hellish vision that they present to us in any way appealing. No one would choose to take the emergency exit under normal circumstances. Just a quick note before we return, if you would like to stay up to date on LifeSite's coverage of the latest life, family, and culture news, subscribe to one of our many newsletters by going to lifesitenews.com slash subscribe. And if you'd like to help us bring our truth-telling coverage to millions around the world, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation at give.lifesitenews.com. And now, back to the video. I want to get to, in a moment, what's going on at the World Economic Forum right now. But one thing that is very noticeable, because this started already, as you said, in the 60s and 70s, but they've become much more visible of late. This used to run sort of behind the scenes. You would hear it. I remember writing about this kind of thing in the early 1990s, but it was not popular. It was not in the mainstream media. Well, you would find it, you know, a new American magazine and things like that. But very little reported on, very few reporters going there, much of their goals, you wouldn't know what's exactly happening. Today, they seem to be out in force. They, they're talking about this. I, I'm amazed, for instance, that Yuval Noah Harari is able to speak publicly because he says the most unbelievable things. He talks openly about useless people. What are we going to do with all these useless people? And offering his suggestion, he says, the the, the thing that I can think of most is, is drugs and video games. Spoken like a true degenerate. 
it, it, I mean, if you indicate the man's private life, it's, it's, it, that, I think that's a case of res ipsiloquiter. You know, the thing speaks for itself. But as for why, why is the WEF so visible today? It's because of their ability, uh, their, their habit of leveraging a sense of permanent alarm. And the great success of fomenting a sense of crisis over the environment has allowed them to open the door to their own profit solutions. The more popular that this, this mistaken, and I think it is mistaken belief, that mankind is destroying the planet uh, and is doing so in an accelerating, destructive fashion, is, uh, it simply helps these people to, to advance their agenda. Without a sense of emergency, no one would, would even consider the expedience that they're offering. But what he's offering is security in a time of ongoing crisis. Crisis is their best friend. This is the reason why many people believe that they themselves have deliberately fermented these crises. Um, personally, I had reservations about this because having met people who work in the institutions at the state level, I, I, I think most of them lack the competence. They are certainly, seriously, they, they, these are, I do not deny that there are plans and I do not deny that there are schemes and that most of them are indeed wicked. They smell of sulfur. As soon as you open the door, there is the echo of mephitic laughter. It's unmistakable. But nonetheless, uh, if there's one saving grace to these people, it's their incompetence. Uh, and I think that it's difficult to argue from many ends. If you look at certain global crises taking place right now, it's hard to see how these things square away with the grand plan. The, the, the war plans haven't gone well. I mean, the United States hasn't won a war since it bombed Japan. Uh, if you if you discount Grenada, the uh, the results of the neoconservative expeditions abroad have been disastrous. So the idea that the that the wars feature in this seems seems preposterous to me. The United States appears to be gearing up for the big one, which is a war against China. There's been a recent slew of articles suggesting that well, rehabilitating the debacle of Afghanistan as some kind of sandbox experiment to prepare for a major war, that one. So I, I would say that, that there are the thing about the World Economic Forum is that people forget that there are other factions at play at state level in the world's most powerful nation, which is the United States. And one of those factions is the neoconservatives. And they are a, they are a different branch of the same kind of tree. They themselves received funding from, from the National Endowment for Democracy, which was a similarly shady, initially CIA set up organization that was, that was set up in the 1960s in order to undermine communist states. It ended up funding think tanks, uh, which support neoconservative ideology. And even today continues to fund people who otherwise couldn't justify a career in journalism because uh, they have the ideas of a shoe. <laughs> But the thing is, is that you know, you, you, when you find people who are famous in, the, in, this, in that sphere and you, you wonder why, how on earth they got there, if you have a look into how much money these people have and what kind of ideology they're, they're purporting to, to believe in, it's simply parrot fashion. You know, they're, what they're doing is they're, they're being paid to repeat a lie and to rebroadcast it. Because the best thing, the most powerful thing that the West still does is the control of mass media, it's propaganda. What's happening right now at the World Economic Forum? I've heard there's been some kind of restriction on journalists, or what's going on from what you've been seeing? The thing about the 5,000 Swiss troops is true. You know, there's always a heavy security presence there. There was some brouhaha last year about a police badge. There is a, there is a police badge they, that, they, that they wear, but these are local police, and they, are, they have a kind of novelty badge because it's a, it's a kind of novel event. But what that is is... 
there, there are also distasteful stories. Which, one which comes out of the Daily Mail that says um, about the amount of prostitutes that have flown into Davos, which gives you an idea of the of the interests of the people attending it. And it should come as no surprise that the kind of people who reach these positions um, aren't people of the highest moral probity. What's going on this year specifically is it, it is a year that is very much angled towards leveraging a sense of global crisis to accelerate the appeal of the, the World Economic Forum's agenda. And what that agenda means is it, it, it is an offer, as it were, uh, and it's best understood as one, of global security and stability uh, and a certain type of citizenship as against a rising background of social collapse, societal collapse, uh, and environmental catastrophe. At the global risk analysis that they that they publish every year, every year the WF publishes an analysis of global risks. In, in almost every recent year, they've published a two-year, five- and ten-year forecast. This year, it's just two and ten years. Uh, they've missed the medium term out. But they place an enormous emphasis on environmental catastrophe. I have never been able to identify who it is they interview to speak about these global concerns. There, there are no sources given, and there's no way of finding out. And I suspect that if I did, I'd probably disappear. <laughs> but uh, the thing is, is that they, they, they make these claims, and it's it's very it's telling that the claims of the, the risk assessments that they offer tessellate very closely with the aims of the WEF. Now, I honestly cannot see how you can overlook the nuclear brinkmanship that we've all been treated to in the last year. Um, uh, that's that, that doesn't feature whatsoever, nor does the impact of the disastrous sanctions or what I would say is the, the large-scale failure of, of diplomacy at the highest levels in the West. We should never be in this position. And it is, it is, it is a genuine tragedy that it is, in fact, only Henry Kissinger himself who has suggested that we take the off-ramp from Ukraine, that we avoid escalation. Henry Kissinger, for his many sins, um, we haven't got time for that. I haven't got time for that in, in, in terms of the rest of my lifetime, never alone tonight. But Henry Kissinger is, is the man who helped to keep the West out of a nuclear exchange over cities like Donetsk. Now, why does it matter so much now? Why are we supposed to throw our lives away for a borderland that NATO would not fight a war over throughout the entirety of the Cold War? It is a shame that you that he's the last realist of any influence whatsoever. He's completely surrounded by uh, neoconservatives who are constantly pushing for escalation. Uh, this is a reckless, ruinous policy, and every single war that they've entered the United States into has been a catastrophic loss. For the people of the nations that they've destroyed, for the United States, who's lost its, its young men and women in those wars, and, of course, for the enormous costs, no one ever seems to count. Where does the money go? He does countermand the other great faction against the technocrats, which is the neoconservatives, that see the idea, they see somehow see war as an instrument of civilization. Oddly enough, there's no mention of that in any of the global risk analysis of the World Economic Forum. It's always an emphasis on environmental doom. It says that people are frightened of the weather. Personally, I find the weather inconvenient. Uh, you know, it was very icy today, to be honest, you know. Uh, you know, my fingers got a bit cold. Uh, when it rains, you know, sometimes people feel a bit gloomy. But um, 
as for major concerns for the next 10 years, no. I don't believe the weather forecast anyway, you know, as a kind of dyed-in-the-wool sceptic. I think that's a conspiracy to depress me because I live on a foggy island. It's never good news. But the thing the thing about that is that the, the, the WF's forecast deliberately excludes meaningful information that, that people would probably relay you in their own lives. For example, there was a, a kind of national survey done by the Hungarian government several days ago, the only one in Europe. And it said that 90, it found that 97% of Hungarians opposed the sanctions on Russia and thought they should immediately, immediately resign the position of hostility and escalation. Uh, there's a growing sense in places like Hungary that the United States war faction uh, is going to retire from, from Ukraine, potentially hang it around the neck of, of Biden. And that will leave Europe in, a, in a, a seriously diminished and exposed position. There are people already calling for, in France, in Hungary and elsewhere, for an, a de-escalation for, to try and draw some of the poison from the um, shattered relationship with Russia. Because you simply have to find some way to, to accommodate yourself to your neighbours. So people do not get asked about these things. The thing about the WEF and its global risk analysis is it doesn't take account of the concerns of ordinary people. And in that, it, it, it does reflect the Western-style managerial democracies that we have that are largely ignorant, willfully ignorant, of the wishes of its population. It's my belief that the systems of the West are no longer truly de democratic because they do not function to reflect the, the general will of the people in any way. In fact, you will find that on a large scale, the majority of public opinion is permanently excluded from the political process. And in almost every Western country, people of genuine political conviction, whether they be, be communists or from the right, are largely excluded from the party political process for this reason. There is not just a tendency, it is a pattern. That is the nature of our, of our governance. We are governed by managerialists. By, by blank faces in ties, people with monotone voices and uninspiring characters who pursue policies that are largely identical to the preceding party's policies against the wishes of the people who constantly vote on a, on a platform that's, that's very attractive. It goes up like a kind of Chinese lantern around the election cycle, only to disappear into the upper atmosphere and be forgotten. It's like a firework. It burns brightly in the mind, all these promises. Then they vanish, and it's business as usual. And you find that that business is angled more towards the kind of global business that the World Economic Forum supports and has absolutely nothing to do with the wishes of its own electorate. This is another dimension in which the West has lost its legitimacy. Now, you've been following this scenario for many years now. How far along in their plans do you think they are? When do you think some of these global surveillance systems and total control, if you will, might be put into place? You can see from the policies of the lockdowns, and you can see from the, I mean, it's very, it's impossible to understand how many people actually took the, the vaccines in any country because the data is just unreliable. Or perhaps in some cases, people haven't wanted to find out. But from, from the acceptance of lockdowns, you can see that there's been a certain compliance with authority. There are two arguments about this. The one argument is you can do what you like to people now. They'll never stand up to any form of tyranny. Uh, the other argument is, is that it may not be so easy for them to do it next time. I think the second argument compelling myself, because from my own experience, anecdotally, even from people who've taken two, maybe even three injections, most people will never take another one. 
They feel tremendously let down. And there is a sense, a palpable sense, that, that the truth has not been told to them. Of course, this is the case. But people who are trying to make that point at the time were, of course, derided and isolated and neutralized as, uh, as, as the kind of lunatics, well, like me. So th this is like anyone, like anyone who had an independence of mind, regardless of your qualifications or expertise, was simply sidelined as a crank. This has been a narrative that is gradually breaking down in, in the public imagination. And there's a sense of, if you like, incredulity towards what people are, are told now. I mean, the United States suffered from a credibility gap around the later stages of the Vietnam War when it emerged that they simply weren't winning as against the broadcast that had been subjected to. The public knew they'd been lied to, and they've been lied to here globally. So it may be difficult to, to implement these, these procedures, if you like, these transformations of human life uh, with a degree of cooperation that was expected from the lockdowns. I don't think that the lockdowns show us that you can expect this kind of uh, conformity and compliance, maybe in a certain section of the population, but certainly not as much as a half or 40% of people. I think people would be much more sceptical towards the aims and practices of government, as well as when it sinks in, that the emergency was generally overstated, that the origins of the virus itself were obscured, and that what was once a conspiracy theory has turned out to be true. I mean, there's a great meme about that. You know, it says, you know, that the uh, conspiracy theorists are running out of them because they're all <laughs> turned out to be true. What this does is it makes people more sceptical, more dubious of what they're told. Unfortunately, it then predisposes them to believe in things that are equally spurious at times. But there's an incredulity towards power, which I think is, uh, is, is difficult for the World Economic Forum and the technocrats that support them. This is the reason why they want to constantly sound the alarm bell. If, if your arguments are compelling, if you think you're going to carry the people with you, then you will carry them with you anyway. If you really are inviting them into a future that resembles some kind of appealing VIP experience, then surely they need no persuasion. But if you're constantly having to bang the gong of alarm, if you're going to have to sound the emergency uh, every, every single time you want to persuade them, you're to point at crisis and even create them to compel people to your arguments, it shows that your arguments aren't winning. I do not think that there's the competence in the institutions to uh, to provide for a full authoritarian crackdown either. I don't think we have them in the West anymore. I don't. It's not that one of the things that's one way to encapsulate that thought is it's not the '90s anymore. When we think of the army, when we think of the state and the law, when we think of the the university system or medicine. We think we think of a vestige. We are we are attached to vestiges. These are images of past efficiencies and, and, and past and past honours that have simply vanished. All they've left are ghosts. We are attached to ghosts. Those things don't exist anymore. We don't have that kind of efficiency. We don't have that kind of probity or strength of character or sense of civic duty that inspired the excellence, which we thought was routine and would last forever. It turned out not to be durable. There's, there's a crisis of competence, which is due to this managerialism because it does select for people for reasons other than their competence. It selects for them for being fungible parts of a machine. So it, it actually selects against talent and against merit and certainly against people of principle. I mean, even someone like Secretary of State James Baker, who worked for um, Walker Bush, you know, not a man who was universally liked, but this was a man who was a diplomat in the traditional sense, 
who knew how to speak to people from foreign cultures without offending them, who took pains to understand people's traditions. This is, this is a man who was probably not seen as the most sympathetic to them, but nonetheless, a man in the mould of, if not anywhere near the equal, of a Talleyrand. But we don't have these kind of people in the West anymore. We don't have the kind of diplomatic engagement or even the will to find them because our managerial system throughout all of our institutions, civil, scientific, military, and in public administration and in politics, selects against talent. It selects against character. What it wants is conformity. It wants willing, fungible parts in the broader managerial machine. And that's what it gets. Where do you think this is going in the short term? How best could we work against this machine? And what's your best bet on the outcome of this year and next? The best antidote to what you might call the massification of everything or, you know, scale, which is, um, you know, the scale, complexity, atomization, uh, liberalism and elitism that, that typifies this kind of technological managerialism is by strong and meaningful human scale bonds, community bonds, by the belief in God by genuine, durable human relations, which begins uh, with the family, but doesn't end there, but the extension of the family into a meaningful community, a helpful mutualist community where people have shared and stable values. Human scale relations is the answer. There is a political movement, which I wrote about for LifeSite the other day, based around uh, the objection to the abolition of farming in Holland. And these people have worked. They've, they've won. They, they, they succeeded in gaining the resignation of the Minister for Agriculture, and they're now one of the leading parties in the country, maybe the foremost party in the country by April. They're rising rapidly in the polls. This is a movement that's based upon what they call neighbourly values. Because their community has not yet been destroyed by the kind of large-scale managerial bureau bureaucratization of everything, there still exist strong community bonds of loyalty and kinship and meaning which has snowballed into an enormous political movement. It's called the farmer-citizen movement. Social bonds, genuine human interaction, people who still retain the meaningful human face-to-face -face relations that make life worth living, these are the people who are going to win. These systems, one of the things that people overlook when they begin to think about the enormous, complex, powerful uh, media-infused and propagandized bureaucracies which are bearing down upon us, they forget the inherent instability of this uh, of an ever more complex system. It is it is unstable and it is tending towards more instability. It isn't working, which is the reason why the the promotion of crisis has become a central plank of the WF's annual agenda. It used to be about creating a better future future through business, prosperity, and cooperation, and more of an upbeat tone. But now it's an attempting to compel its own, its own arguments by pointing to global crises, which all tend somehow to trace back to the very people in the room at the time. It's a very difficult argument to make when people begin to look and say, well, you know, why, why was there an economic crisis after lockdown and all that money? Where did all that money go? Oh, it went to they're all sitting in this room. There they are. It was you. And furthermore, right, anyone who's going to put Bono on the screen, I mean, really, you know, I think not only have you lost all legitimacy, I mean, that, that's basically an argument for giving Putin the nuclear coordinates. It's, uh, 
it's just it's you, you don't have to say anything more than Bono. Yeah, just just the last syllable. No, will do. Yeah, I think you should change his name to that. But that's the thing: is that human scale relations are possible. A human scale society is possible. The the, the antidote to this is is what is meaningful. This is the reason why these technocrats hate the family. This is the reason why you have so many anti-family uh, policies. Yuval Noah Harari will never have a family, or if he will, it will be a weird approximation of one because he's an aggressive homosexualist, uh, and he doesn't see anything wrong with that. And this is the reason why he sees nothing wrong with taking a wrecking ball to to human nature and to the natural order. These people have their own agendas privately, but you will find that they feed into um, an idea of humanity that rejects the human scale uh, in everything. Everything that is meaningful, from genuine affection, uh, for the, their disgusting conflation of the idea of love with unbridled uh, sexual depravity, the moral inversion that results from the massification of society is another, it is, is another thing that is producing inherent instability in this attempt at a global managerial bureaucracy. The moral inversion is, is not just the inversion of, of vice and virtue. You can see from, well, Nike advertisements that champion the obese, uh, from stunning and brave being applied to Bruce Jenner. I refuse to call him by any other name. Uh, stunning and brave. You know, whenever people mention that, I, I simply see his face. And uh, I'm determined to get myself sent to the Gulag. So, you know, I will go to the Gulag for misgendering Jenner. The moral inversion that results from this extremely distorted vision of humanity that comes from it's a it, it comes from the massification of human experience it's a pathologizing tendency moral inversion isn't just about turning the values upside down about presenting vice as virtue it's it's also it also it's also typified by an intense but nihilistic fervor it's it's because when people's genuine genuine anchorage of meaning in god in the family in endurable human scale relations in their own communities, when their nation is dissolved, when every, when their custom and culture and tradition is 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 reviled and dragged through the mud and dismantled aggressively, when there's nothing left but the self, then there is an enormous nihilistic void within people that screams to be filled. It is this howl that you hear when people tear down statues or when they commit arson and riots in the name of social justice. In every furor that seems to take place first through social media and then in the streets, you can see this intense moral fervor of people who have no wider moral framework than themselves and whose actions, in a broader sense, simply don't make sense. It is a, it is a meaningless but intense sense of self-importance. And that's the desperation of people who are dis who are completely deprived from the correct or natural human dimension. This is the, it is a it is a mass psychosis, and it, and this this is useful too. If you're a technocratic managerialist, the sicker people are, the better, because they're more easily manipulated, and also they buy more things, like Funko Pops. <laughs> I want to ask you for concluding thoughts. And I want to get your, uh, you're okay to come back on the program. It's been a fascinating ride with you. I am so glad we got to this. Uh, give us your final thoughts, if you will. I would say Neil Desperand. Despair is, is a sin, and it's a sin for a reason. Because you, you give up on the hope of the salvation of the Lord. What these people fear, if and they do fear a lot of things. They fear happy, 
well-ordered, stable, functioning people. And these are people whose lives are anchored in God and the family. And if you, if you ever wanted something to live by, other than your faith, if you want a motto that you can live by why, to, to resist the large-scale mental illness factory that is being promoted as the future normality, you could just think of yourself as a radical normal. Because to be normal is really to be radical nowadays. Be proud. We should start a march, actually. Maybe I'll lead it. Normal pride. <laughs> you can turn up as yourself. Bring your own flag. It's probably a flag that you recognize from your childhood. But yes, that's what I would say, is that, is that we are the kind of people that will, be, that will be there to pick up the pieces. I want to say this in all seriousness, because I've been joking. The epidemic mental illness is, is a fact of, of society. The fact that screen-based socialization, that people are increasingly patterned on things that make them mentally ill, is, is a fact. The epidemic use of antidepressants is a fact. The large-scale immiseration of people is a fact. Do not go among these people and sneer. Don't, don't go up to your broken, screaming, blue-haired uh, compatriots and despise them. Think of yourself, even if you can't say anything nice about them, try and think of yourself as a missionary in your own society. This is the best way that I've ever heard. It wasn't my idea. It was someone that told me this. This is the best way that I've ever heard of how to function in the madhouse. So don't let yourself become poisoned by hate. Think of yourself as a missionary in your own culture, in your own community, in your own life, in your own, in your own nation, because that's what it needs to heal it. Indeed. Frank Wright, thank you so much for being with us. And uh, we hope that you're back very soon. For more details on what's going on with the World Economic Forum and everything else, may God bless you. Thank you. Thank you, John. God bless you too. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye for now, and God bless all of you. And we'll see you next time. Hi, everyone. This is John Henry Weston. We hope you enjoyed this program. To see more like it, be sure to hit the subscribe button below to get all the latest content from LifeSite News. Check the links in the description to read more and connect with us on social media so that you can stay up to date with all the latest life, family, faith, and freedom news. Thanks for watching, and may God bless you.